Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and my goal is to help you to either teach or study the scriptures with more relevancy and power. This week marks a significant shift in our study of the New Testament this year. We're going to begin our study of what are called the Pauline Epistles, or a series of letters that Paul wrote to congregations of early saints living in various cities throughout the Roman Empire. So, for example, 1st and 2nd Corinthians are written by Paul to the members of the church in the Greek city of Corinth, Ephesians to the members in Ephesus, Thessalonians to the members in Thessalonica, and so on. And then there are a few epistles that were directed to specific individuals, such as Timothy and Philemon. Now, it's important to know that the epistles of Paul are not arranged in chronological order or in order of importance or alphabetical order. They're just basically arranged by length. They start with the longest, Romans, and end with the shortest, Philemon. The book of Hebrews, though, which is a larger book, is placed after Philemon because there is some debate as to whether it was actually written by Paul or not. But this week, we're going to be taking a look at the first six chapters of Romans, Paul's letter addressed to the saints living in Rome. So if you're ready, grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. Now, I'd like to give you a little bit of a heads up here. I'm not going to lie to you. The epistles of Paul are a bit harder to understand than most books of scripture. And Romans is one of the hardest of the epistles. So it's a bit of a baptism by fire here. Paul can get a little wordy at times, bless his heart, and dives really deep into certain points and then comes back to his previous ones, and, and sometimes he can be a little hard to follow. This is, uh, is college-level doctrinal study. But that being said, I'll make you a promise that if you're willing to put forth the effort to dig into them, to really study, to ponder the epistles of Paul, will reward you greatly. Paul's teachings are truly profound, fascinating, beyond the basics, and those that have ears to hear will be edified and strengthened in their faith. In fact, my favorite verse of all scripture is found in the book of Romans. We're going to be covering that one next week. The fact of the matter is that to really understand Romans, or most of Paul's epistles, you almost have to go verse by verse, which is, is just not realistic when you're trying to teach a Sunday school lesson or, or even your family. You can't go verse by verse or cover it all. So your task as a teacher is going to be to simplify the message and zero in on the themes and the sections that you feel are most relevant to your audience and the principles that you feel most prompted by the Spirit to focus on. And I promise to do my best to try and help you to see those themes and give you some ideas on how to present those effectively. Finally, something else that might help you to understand some of Paul's more challenging passages would be to consult a different translation of the Bible, as well as using the King James Version. And the translations that I prefer most are the NIV and the RSV, which are both available online for free. And I promise you that there's nothing wrong or heretical about consulting a different Bible translation. 
However, I still recommend that you teach from the King James Version, since that's what your students are, are all going to have access to. Plus, I believe that there's no other translation that matches the King James for the beauty of its language or the rhythm of its prose. Now, those of you who studied the New Testament with me four years ago may notice that my lesson this time for Romans 1 through 6 is, is quite a bit different. And that illustrates the power and the beauty of the scriptures. They can teach us different things at different times in our lives. And this time around, I saw a very different message here in Romans. So if what I share here doesn't resonate with you as much, perhaps you could check out my previous video from 2019 for an alternate take on it. In that video, I focus much more on the balance of the doctrines of grace, faith, and works, and how those principles work together. And there is some of that message here, but I've decided to take this lesson in a slightly different direction. When I teach the epistles lessons, I usually try to come up with a hook, a theme, an idea, a pattern. And that hook helps to unify the various messages that you find within the chapters. And for this lesson, the hook or icebreaker is, is good news, bad news. Okay, good news, bad news. And so I start with a joke. And it goes like this. The Pope is sitting in his office when one of his cardinals comes running in frantically and says, Your Holiness, I've got some good news and some bad news. Which would you like to hear first? The Pope thinks for a second and he responds, well, why don't you tell me the good news first? And the Cardinal says, okay, well, we just got a phone call from Jesus, informing us that he's returned to earth to begin his reign of peace and glory for a thousand years. To which the, the Pope jumps up excitedly and exclaims, well, that's wonderful. How on earth could there be any bad news? And the Cardinal looks at him a little sheepishly and says, well, he's calling from Sultan. So uh, no offense to our Catholic friends out there. Uh, I suppose you could easily tell that joke in the reverse as well. But today, in the book of Romans, we're going to take a look at some good news and some bad news. And we can find an example of both right here in Romans chapter 1. Now first, does anybody know what the word gospel means? Gospel, in Old English and Greek, literally means good news. But the gospel isn't just good news, it's the good news. Now, can you find a verse in Romans chapter 1 that shows us how Paul felt about the good news of the gospel? As you go through that chapter, you're going to find it. Verse 16 which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That's a, that's a powerful and inspiring statement. I would write that phrase as a teacher in big letters up on the board. It's a motto you can live by, a saying you could write in beautiful calligraphy and hang it up on your wall. There's more to that verse, though. What reason does Paul give for why he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? It's because it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, which is just another way of saying Jew and Gentile, everybody. 
And then one more question to take our understanding of this verse deeper. How does knowing that, that that second part, help us to not be ashamed of the gospel? And the reason, or, or one of the reasons, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ is because he knows it will bring salvation and understanding and light into people's lives, just as it did for him. So why would he be hesitant or, or ashamed to share that gospel with others? You wouldn't be ashamed to offer first aid to somebody that was injured. You wouldn't be ashamed to give food to somebody that was hungry. You wouldn't be ashamed to give somebody a warning of impending danger. And you wouldn't be ashamed to tell somebody a great bit of good news. Likewise, there's no need to be ashamed to live or to share the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. Captain Moroni understood this when he wrote down his beliefs and waved them on the end of a pole for everybody to see. He wasn't ashamed. Esther understood this when she decided to risk her life by approaching the king for the sake of her people. She wasn't ashamed. Missionaries all over the world walk up to people, knock on doors, share the gospel with anybody who will listen. They're not ashamed. And Jesus understood this when he asked us to be the light of the world and not to put our candle under a bushel or to hide our light from others. He asked us not to be ashamed, just as he was never ashamed to stand up for what was right, to speak the truth, and to invite all to come unto him. So the great truth of this verse, when I understand the power and the goodness and the salvation of the gospel, it gives me courage to live it myself and to share it with others. It gives me courage not to be ashamed. As a teacher, I really want my students to leave my class that day feeling inspired by that verse, by that truth. So I like to provide them with some examples of people who I feel truly understood that principle. One way to do that is with the church's wealth of inspiring videos, or what we used to call Mormon messages, which many of those carry that I am not ashamed of the gospel spirit and message to them. So here's what you do. You can create a QR code video gallery for your students. And I've got to be honest here, this wasn't my idea. I saw this in a manual, but, but I like it a lot and, and I know that it works remarkably well. There are a number of, of websites on the internet that allow you to create QR codes that will immediately direct individuals to a specific website or video if they point the cameras on their phones at the QR code. It'll, it'll bring up a link and they can click on that and it will take them directly to it. So I print out a number of posters that display the QR codes and a, a teaser title beneath it. And I tape those all around the classroom. I then invite my students to walk around the gallery and just pick a video or two that, that the title interests them the most. And I mean, almost everybody these days carries a cell phone. And, and even those that don't have one could pair up with somebody that does. And then you just give them five to ten minutes 
to choose their videos to watch and then and then after instruct them to come back to their seats. Then I, I usually invite them to share examples of, of how the people in the videos that demonstrated that they were not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, how they did that. If you're interested in doing this activity, I'll, I'll make the QR code posters uh, available on Etsy. And also I'll provide links to each of those suggested videos in the video description below. But, but here are the titles of the ones that I would put up around the room. True Blue Through and Through, Inviting All to Come Unto Christ, 195 Dresses, No Cussing Club, Dare to Stand Alone, Sharing Your Beliefs, Same Jersey, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, if you don't want to do that particular activity, you could always just go through the videos and choose the one that you would like to show to the entire class. One of my favorites is the story of Joseph F. Smith returning home from his mission from Hawaii. And it's such a good one. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's, it's a famous story. He's camping with a group of other missionaries when, when an armed mob rides into the camp threatening to kill anybody who's a Mormon. And all of the men run. They scatter. Except for Joseph F. Smith, who stands his ground. And one of the mobbers rode up to him pointed a gun in his face and asked, are you a Mormon? And can you imagine that for a minute? Someone is threatening to shoot you, murder you in cold blood for being a member of the church. And you're literally staring down the barrel of a gun. What would you say? He looked up at that man and with a big smile exclaimed, yes, siree, died in the wool true blue through and through which which was an early western way of saying yep you bet i'm a mormon and i'm proud of it to which the mobber responded by slowly lowering his gun and saying well ain't you the pleasantest man i ever met shake young fellow i am glad to see a man that stands up for his convictions after which all of the mobbers rode away. To liken the scriptures after either activity, who is someone you know that has an I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ attitude? And how do they show it? Or, or have you ever had a time when you feel you showed that you were not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? And what happened? And I hope that as we've talked about this one little verse, this one phrase here, that you've been inspired in some way by Paul or by one of those other stories that we've looked at today. I invite you to look for opportunities this week to demonstrate that you are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Think of a situation that you might face this week and ponder what you're going to do when it comes. And I promise that the Lord will help you and he'll give you the strength you need to not be ashamed. The gospel is good news. There's no need to hold it back. Now for the bad news. Right? This is the bad news lesson that you can teach from chapter 1. And it's found in verses 18 through 32. For a simple icebreaker, you could show a few silly YouTube videos. 
I'd show the following three and ask my students what they all have in common. And I can't show them here, but I will put links to them in the video description below. Lots of video links today. And, and they're short ones, but if you take the time to watch them, you'll see that they all show people having a bad start. Okay? In various races, they mess up at the beginning. They trip, they fall, they crash. Therefore, how do you think the rest of their race is going to go? Are they more likely or less likely to have a good finish? Less likely, obviously. If you have a bad start, you can usually expect a bad finish. Joseph Smith alluded to this principle when he said the following. If we start right, it is easy to go right all the time. But if we start wrong, we may go wrong, and it be a hard matter to get right. Well, Romans chapter 1 illustrates the importance of starting right and the danger of starting wrong, doctrinally speaking. Verses 18 through 32 show us what can happen if you start from the wrong doctrinal foundation. If you don't get this one principle right, this one doctrine right, it tends to lead down a spiritually destructive path. That's the bad news. Paul, Paul's going to show us this problem pattern. So what is that foundational principle that you've got to get right? What's the gospel starting line? And therefore, the doctrine that the adversary is probably going to go after first. Because from a diabolical perspective, if you can destroy or warp or change a person's understanding of this, the rest of the process of taking advantage of them, manipulating them, destroying their soul, is so much easier. What is that doctrine? See if you can find it in verses 20 through 25. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. So did you catch it? What's the basic doctrine that the adversary is attacking here? The Godhead, right? An understanding of God, his nature, his character. That's the starting line principle 
that we've got to get right. Get that wrong, that prime assumption, that, that prime foundational doctrine wrong, and you put yourself into spiritually dangerous territory. So it shouldn't surprise us that Joseph Smith once said that it is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God and to know that we may converse with him as one man converses with another. See, Joseph understood the importance of that foundational doctrine. But what has man done with that doctrine through the influence of the adversary? From the verses we just read, verse 20, they don't see God in the things that are made, his creations, the world that's around us. They reject the testimony of his creation, even though those things are clearly seen. From verse 21, they don't glorify him as God. Uh, they're not thankful for him. They don't worship him. And so what do they do instead? They, verse 23, change his glory into something else, something corruptible. Rather than recognizing that God made us in his image, in both body and spirit, they reverse that and they decide to create him in their image. They turn to idolatry. They create their own gods. And 25, change the truth of God into a lie. So case in point, what are some of the lies that have been told throughout the ages about God's character that have led people down the wrong path? Here's a few ideas. One, the lie that you can create your own God out of wood or stone. And that was an especially effective tactic uh, of the adversary in Old Testament times. Uh, a lot of idolatry going on back then. Why is that a problem? <laughs> when you create your own God, then you also get to create your own rules that govern his worship. Which leads you, as it says in verse 25, to worship the creature more than the creator. Funny how idolatry always seemed to be wrapped up in getting into the lusts of the natural man. That's usually how their worship function. Or they created God into an unforgiving, vengeful, or angry God that you had to please or he'll send you to hell to suffer for eternity. Or on the other extreme, they created him into an extremely merciful God to where all you have to do is profess a commitment to him with your lips and you're saved regardless of anything else you do. Or another lie that's told about God is that he's an absentee God who simply created the world, set it spinning, and now largely ignores its inhabitants and what happens here. Or he's a God who has elected only certain people to salvation and others to damnation, and there's nothing we can do about it. Or, a common one today, there is no God at all. God is simply a construct of the human mind. And then consider this. What was one of the first doctrines to go in the great apostasy? One of the first things the early Christian church 
uh, loses an understanding of the true nature of God, right? And you see that in some of the creeds and pronouncements that come out of the early Christian church. And so therefore, what was the first doctrine restored in the restoration? It was the doctrine of the Godhead. As Joseph looks up into heaven, there in the sacred grove, what did he learn about the doctrine of the Godhead? A lot of things. He learned that the Father and the Son are separate beings, that they have bodies of flesh and bone. And the first spoken word of the restoration is Joseph. Right, right? Joseph, this is my beloved son, hear him. In that one word is restored the doctrine that God knows us, he cares about us, and he answers our prayers. So many doctrines about the nature of God that were restored in that one event. Now, I don't think it matters to Satan which misunderstanding you have, just as long as you misunderstand you. Because once you've changed the truth of God into a lie, what so often comes next? What, what can that lead to? Verses 28 through 32 express it most clearly. And yes, I realize that I'm skipping verses 26 through 27, not because I'm afraid of dealing with that topic, but because it's such a charged issue in our current climate that I would worry as a teacher that it would completely derail the momentum of the lesson. I believe there are other places and times uh, where it would be better to have that discussion. But verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So, simply put, what does a misunderstanding of the character of God lead to? In short, sin. <laughs> All manner of sin. There's a lot of different flavors of sin out there. Some misunderstandings lead more to one form of unrighteousness and others to other forms. Doesn't matter to Satan. While some might lead to immorality and hedonism and crime, others can lead to pride, intolerance, hatred, and debate. These misunderstandings can greatly affect our perception of morality our concept of right and wrong. And I believe that there is a lot of evidence of this happening in our world today. There is great confusion about morality. The lines between right and wrong are blurred. Everything is relative. And that which is vulgar, crass, violent, immoral, 
are commonplace and, and in some cases even celebrated. See evidence of that in our movies, our music, our entertainment, our language, our dress, our views on sex, marriage, and family. I believe that all of these problems stem fundamentally from not having a clear perception of the nature of God. So our truth here, if I don't have a good understanding of the nature of God, it can greatly affect my understanding of morale. Or more simply put, bad doctrine leads to bad behavior. Well, what's our solution to this problem then? For me, the key verse is verse 21. And yes, this is Paul's negative description of that path, uh, the path that eventually leads to a foolish and darkened heart, which we don't want. Uh, we want we want wise and enlightened hearts. So we just need to do the opposite of what they're doing in that verse. So can you can you see what those steps might be? First, I need to know God. I seek to know his true attributes and character and seek him in the scriptures and the words of the living prophets and in prayer. And I need to glorify God, worship him in prayer, in church meetings, in ordinances and covenants, in testimony. I need to thank God, recognize his hand in my life, count my blessings, show gratitude for what he's given me. And I need to be humble before God, as opposed to being vain. Recognize that God's ways are not my ways, that his wisdom is greater than mine, and to trust him enough to do as he instructs. So right now, to liken the scriptures, let's fight back against the adversary's tactics here. Let's foil his evil plan by taking part in these solutions. So to my class, I'd ask, if anyone would be willing to help protect us from the adversary by doing just one of the following. Either one, tell us how you have come to know God is real or something about his nature. Or somebody who would be willing to glorify God by bearing their testimony of him. Or thanking God for something that he's given you or done for you. Or tell us something that you do that helps you to be humble before God. Or, as an alternate activity, you could have them write their answer to one of those four things uh, in their journals. Now, now, hopefully, we won't fall for the adversary's trap, will we? As members of the Restored Church of Jesus Christ, we've been blessed with a deep and doctrinally sound understanding of the true nature of the Godhead which helps us to remain steadfast on the path of righteousness and morality because we start from the correct prime foundation, assumption, perception. And if you start well, you're much more likely to end well. So our job now is to maintain our understanding, to not be deceived by the opinions and the pressures and the lies of the world, to not change the truth of God into a lie, and begin worshiping the creature over the Creator, 
Good doctrine leads to good behavior. I'll conclude with something that Boyd K. Packer once said along those same lines. True doctrine, understood, changes attitudes and behavior. The study of the doctrines of the gospel will improve behavior quicker than a study of behavior will improve behavior. That is why we stress so forcefully the study of the doctrines of the gospel. Well, you know, already, look how much time has passed, and we've only covered the first chapter. Uh, that's going to be a typical challenge as we teach the epistles of Paul. There's a lot to them. They're, they're meaty, every chapter. But, but I do feel that those two points that we've made in that first chapter are key uh, to this week's lessons. But now, we're going to cover the remaining five chapters as one lesson, where I'm going to try to help you to see the big picture of Paul's message to the Romans. Now, granted, this is going to be a huge oversimplification of these chapters, right? Uh, somebody who really knows their stuff might say, wow, you're missing so much here. But that's okay. You're just trying to help your students get a sense of the message, especially with the time that you have as a teacher. Sometimes when you try to go verse by verse with Paul, it's easier to lose the forest for the trees. So we're going to paint with broad brushstrokes here. And as an icebreaker to this portion of the lesson, you can try the following activity. It's a what's wrong with this picture handout. Invite your students to circle in the second picture all the things that are wrong or, or different about it as compared to the first picture. And if you take the time to do that, here is the solution. Sometimes, as members of the church, we may find ourselves getting caught up in doing the same kind of thing, but on a personal or spiritual level. Meaning that we look at ourselves with a what's wrong kind of attitude. Have you ever found yourself doing this kind of thing? Comparing yourself to Christ or to others and only looking for or pointing out the places where you fall short. We, we know what we're supposed to do and we know what perfection looks like. We see it in Christ. But all we see in ourselves is where we fail. And we do need to do that at times. We do need to, to strive to improve, receive correction. However, this mentality can be taken too far. If all we do is focus on what we lack, where we falter, it can be very easy to get discouraged. It can even get to the point where we despair or become very unhappy people. And that's not the intent of the gospel, remember? It's good news. But Paul is going to help us to resist that attitude here in Romans chapters 2 through 6. These are great chapters for any member of the church who feels plagued by, by what we sometimes refer to as toxic perfectionism or the constant worry that we don't measure up or this feeling that we can earn our way into heaven through our good works or that we need to earn our way to heaven through good works. So to continue with our good news, bad news theme, 
Paul has some more bad news for us. And we're going to find that in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, 3, 9 through 10, and 3, 23. What's the common message in, in those verses? If you read those verses, you'll find the message is that we are all sinners, okay? We're all inexcusable. We're all under sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And that's the bad news. That's the discouraging news, especially for those who truly desire to be like Christ. No matter how hard they try, they always still seem to end up lacking in some way. So now let's quickly summarize the big picture message of these first three chapters of Romans we've covered so far. Now you remember how chapter one ended, that giant list of sins that people are committing because they don't know God. Well, perhaps Paul is worried that the members are now looking around and saying, yeah, look at all those problems that other people have. Those wicked people out there that don't understand God. Glad I'm not like that. Well, the major gist of chapter two is, okay, be careful, members of the church. Don't be too judgmental here. Are you perfect in these things? Probably not. Are you being hypocritical? Possibly. Case in point, verses 21 through 23. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? So don't, don't be hypocritical. Don't just look at all the problems everybody else has. Look at your own. And if you do that, in chapter 3, you're going to realize that we are all sinners. So in short, Romans 1, many sin because they don't understand God. Romans 2, but don't be too judgmental or hypocritical because, Romans 3, we are all sinners. Well, that's kind of a downer, huh? But then we have this shift at the end of Romans chapter 3. Paul is now ready to give them the good news. Yes, we are all sinners, but what's the good news? Read Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. How would you summarize the message of this part? Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. The good news is that we're justified by the grace of Christ. He made it possible for us to receive a remission of our sins and is the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. We can be forgiven. Even though we're all sinners, we can be saved by his grace. Now, Romans chapter 4 is going to serve as an illustration of that principle. Paul is going to use an Old Testament prophet to exemplify this idea. Can you find who that example is? If you scan through the chapter, you'll discover that it's Abraham. Abraham's going to be our example. And what's the similarity between his story and ours? Well, Abraham was asked to have faith in a promise 
that seemed hard and impossible to believe. He was promised that he would become a father of many nations, even though both he and Sarah were getting very, very old, almost a hundred. And that promise just seemed too good to be true, impossible. Well, that's like us. We too may find it very difficult to believe that we can be justified by God's grace. That sometimes seems too good to be true, especially for those who struggle to forgive themselves, who feel like they never measure up, who can find guilt under every rock. People who, though they may not realize it, are trying to work or worthy themselves into heaven. I want you to read these next verses with that in mind. Don't just think about Abraham here. Think about it from the perspective of the person that is feeling that way, that's struggling with the idea of God's grace as, as too hard or impossible. Look for the phrases that describe what Paul wants them to do with that impossible promise. Verses 18 through 24. Speaking of Abraham, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Did you catch that last thought there? The lesson Abraham learned through his experience was not just for his benefit, but for ours. See, Paul's inviting us to liken the scriptures to ourselves. It was not written for his sake alone, but for us also. So what are the phrases that we can apply to ourselves? How should we approach God's seemingly too wonderful, too good to be true, impossible promise that we can be saved by his grace. There's some beautiful phrases here. We can, against hope, believe in hope. We can be not weak in faith. We can stagger not at the promise of God. We can be strong in faith. We can be fully persuaded that what God promises, he is able also to perform. That's the message for us. Believe in his goodness. Nobody is going to earn their way into heaven. It doesn't work that way. Nobody is going to, this is one way to put it, worthy themselves into heaven. Do you understand what I mean by that? There are wonderful, faithful, committed members of the church out there who are trying to worthy themselves into heaven and they get discouraged because they fall short but God looks down at them lovingly and says you can't worthy yourself into my kingdom nobody can you can only forgiveness your way here you can only grace your way 
into my kingdom. It's the only way you can ever arrive. And I know that's hard to believe sometimes, but please, against hope, believe in hope. Stagger not at my promise. Be fully persuaded that I can do this for you. And if we'll do that, if we believe in that promise, if we can be strong in the faith in that promise, what are going to be the results? Now we go to Romans chapter 5. We're going to feel some things. We won't walk around plagued by guilt, shame, discouragement, or despair. We'll feel something different. The feelings that our Father in heaven wants for his children, and especially the disciples of his beloved son. Now let's see if you can fill in my chart here. I'll give you the first letter of the word that I'm looking for, and you fill in the rest. When we fully grasp the beauty of Christ's grace, we will feel what? Chapter 5, verse 1, a word that starts with P. Peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. From verse 2, a word that starts with H. Hope. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. From verses 3 and 4, a word that starts with P patience. Now this one's a little more involved. Patience in what? Patience in our tribulations. Because life's not going to be easy. We're going to struggle. We're going to face hard things. But understanding and trusting in the grace of Christ can make those tribulations easier to bear. We'll realize that our trials bring us patience. And patience brings us experience. And that experience gives us hope. It's natural progression and connection between those principles. And then leading into verse 5, that hope maketh us not ashamed. Now, that sounds familiar, right? We can link that idea back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. What made it possible for Paul to say that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Well, here's another part of it. That not ashamedness comes from his hope in Christ's grace. Because, next word, verse 5, the blank of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Starts with an L. Love. And then we've got one more word from verse 11. Starts with a J. Joy. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Interesting side note here. That's the only time the word atonement is used in the entire New Testament. It's just once. Interesting, huh? So the truth. When I truly trust in the power of the atonement and the grace it offers me, my life will be filled with peace, hope, patience, love, and joy. To liken the scriptures... How has the atonement of Jesus Christ and the promise of his grace brought you one of these feelings? For me, the one that stands out, peace. Peace is what I most feel. To know that God can look past my weaknesses and my shortcomings and that I can be forgiven for, for the things that I do, big and little, through Jesus Christ, that brings me peace.
And then to go one step further, just how wonderful is Jesus Christ's atonement and grace and forgiveness? How amazing is it? Read verses 6 through 8. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how amazing Christ's sacrifice for us was. I mean, would you be willing to die for a righteous person? Maybe. How about just an average good person? Maybe not as likely. But how many of us would be willing to give our lives for a bad person, for a criminal, for an enemy even? Jesus was that type of person. He died for us while we were yet sinners. I stand all amazed at the love Jesus offers me, confused at the grace that so fully he proffers me. Oh, it is wonderful that he should care for me enough to die for me. Oh, it is wonderful, wonderful to me. Now, we don't want to end there quite yet. We've still got Romans chapter 6, which is going to provide us with an important balancing principle. Paul has just emphasized how wonderful, how glorious, how amazing the grace of God is. But now he's worried that some might take that idea a little too far. Does he want people running around saying, Hey, just believe in Christ and you'll be saved. You'll be justified. All of your sins will be forgiven. What might be the danger in taking that idea too far? Well, I may begin to feel that what I do doesn't matter at all. Perhaps I begin to excuse my sins. I begin to overemphasize the power of God's grace. Or worse yet, maybe I even come to the conclusion found in verse 1 of Romans 6. See if you can interpret this. What what does this mean? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And what's the attitude there? This is when we say, well, if grace is so wonderful, then go ahead and sin so that we can have more grace. More sin equals more grace. Well, that's wonderful. And maybe people don't exactly express it that way, But I have heard some reason that it's better to go out and experience sin so that you can more fully experience the goodness of repentance and grace. Just going through that experience makes your relationship with God strong, which it does. But maybe a young person will hear somebody else talk about how at one point in their lives they lived a very rebellious lifestyle, but then they eventually repented, and now they have this incredibly strong conviction of the gospel and this close relationship with God that that came by going through that repentance process. And then that young person might be tempted to think, well, maybe I need to go out and and go through something similar so so that I can really understand the power of repentance and forgiveness. Now, what does Paul say to that attitude? Verse two, God forbid, (laughs) No, no, that's not the conclusion we want you to come to. And, and, and personally, I don't agree with that theory at all. I believe that a person who has never sunk deeply into sin 
or, or lived a rebellious lifestyle can have just as strong a relationship with God as, as somebody who has sinned deeply and then repented. Uh, think of, of the brethren's lives. <laughs> These are men that are, are very, very close to God. And if you look into their past, though they're not perfect, you may not find those kinds of things. Now jump back to Romans 2, verses 4 through 5, for another quick take on that thought. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So the goodness of God, or his grace, should lead to repentance, not more sin. If we're using the atonement and God's gracious and forgiving, long-suffering, forbearing nature as an excuse to go out and sin, and that's not good. That, that shows that our heart is hard, and we are treasuring up wrath instead of grace, unless our heart changes. Now, the goodness of God, the grace offered through the atonement of Christ, should lead us to do something else. What should it lead to? Now we're going to go back to Romans 6. And I want you to mark the following phrases, just to help simplify the message here. From verse 4, Even so we also should walk in newness of life. Verse 6, henceforth we should not serve sin. Verse 13, but yield yourselves unto God. Verse 18, ye became the servants of righteousness. And 19, yield your members, servants to righteousness, unto holiness. How did you get the message there? What should the message of God's grace lead us to? Newness of life. More righteousness, not more sin. It should make us even greater servants of God, even more committed to Him. Which will in turn result in Romans 6.22. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So that's what's going to lead us to everlasting life will return to heaven, the presence of our Father, and we will make it. So to complete our oversimplified summary of Romans 1 through 6. Romans 1, many sin because they don't understand God. 2, but don't be too judgmental or hypocritical because 3, we are all sinners. But God offers us the promise of grace through the atonement. Romans 4, Believe in that promise, just as Abraham believed in the promise made to him. Romans 5, that understanding will bring you peace, hope, patience in tribulation, love, and joy. And Romans 6, therefore, walk in newness of life and serve righteousness, and you will have eternal life. Now, obviously, that's not going to be the end of Paul's message. The book of Romans continues. In fact, the rest of Romans is going to teach us how to walk in newness of life. What that looks like. How a servant of righteousness acts. But that's going to have to wait until next week. 
So, those of you that maybe seem to struggle with feelings of inadequacy and guilt and self-doubt in your discipleship, did Paul just help you a little bit? I hope so. And I know his message has helped me to have a, a healthier understanding of the balance between grace and works. On the one hand, we don't want to get so focused on our sins and weaknesses that we get discouraged and forget to enjoy the peace and joy that are promised by God's grace. And on the other hand, we don't want to become so focused on the promise of grace that we begin to excuse sin and become complacent in our discipleship. It doesn't have to be an either-or proposition. We can stop looking for what's wrong in the picture of our lives and start rejoicing in the peace and joy offered by the grace of God. And then strive to walk in newness of life from then on. Become servants of righteousness. And then, like Abraham and Sarah, we can, against hope, believe in hope. And all God promises us will come true. God's grace is real. And I promise that it will come to all who desire. that will conclude our lesson for this week. Thank you for spending this time with me. Teachers, if you'd like access to the resources that I create, you can go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to those resources. And now, thank you so much for watching. Get out there and teach with